All right, if you guys would, get your Bibles. Got those Bibles ready? It's good for the soul to hear the turns of the pages, right? So have your Bibles ready. If you don't have one, we will provide one for you before you leave tonight, okay? But you've got to have the Word of God. And uh, really, this entire series is based on that, an overview of, uh, of, the, of the whole picture and symphony of Scripture. And so you need your Bibles. Encourage you guys as we do this to take notes, really be writing stuff down, write down references and go back and check later. This is something that is just absolutely spectacular and you really need more than a 45 minute or hour long message to digest and think through and allow this to transform your mind and your vision of the future. And so if you would just join me in prayer, Father, come before you now, Lord, as the shepherd of these people, God, I pray, God, that you would give me grace that I need, God, so desperately, Lord, strength, God, boldness, God, clarity, that you'd get me out of the way. Lord, please get me out of the way and use this for your glory. I pray with all my heart, God, that you would get me out of the way, that this would be something that, Lord, people will forget my name entirely in history and remember yours because of what takes place in this room tonight. That Christ would be exalted, God, that those in here that know you would be encouraged and blessed and strengthened, that they'd, be, that they'd be shaped and transformed in their mind. God, their mind renewed to see just how glorious and exalted and high and lifted up Jesus truly is. And if anyone in here doesn't know you, God, that tonight, Lord, you draw your people to yourself, God, that you would bring conviction, that you would grant repentance and faith and trust, and Lord, that you'd bring new life tonight, God, that you would teach by your spirit tonight. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would mightily move tonight, God, for your glory for the future of the kingdom of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you're, if you're new to Apologia Church, you came at a, at a really an excellent time in the history of our church because we're doing is, is an important series. Um, you, you might think that we're doing a series on end times and eschatology to be popular or to be exciting in some sense. And, and, and of course, I want it to be exciting, and I think that it really truly is. It's, this stuff is transcendent. It is life transforming, and it really just makes Jesus look glorious. So I want it to be exciting, and I want you really to be shaped by it. But in reality, we're doing this series, Eschaton, because the Bible has a vision of history that if you're in Christ, you're a part of. And you need to know about that, 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 that message and that, that symphony of scripture so that you really understand the whole picture of what God is doing in history and just reflect that right back to God in praise and in worship. This should transform your life. This series shouldn't just be about taking, uh, uh, nitpicking scripture and getting excited about little things here or there and having sort of like just pieces of, of an end times view put together in your mind that are really confusing. I believe that if you see the scripture as a whole, as, as a total picture and story that God gives to us, it's going to change your whole perspective of God. It'll change your whole perspective of the church. It'll change your whole perspective of the future. It's going to change how you look at your kids and your grandkids and your great, great, great grandkids. It'll change how you, you, you view work and life and ministry and worship. It's going to change everything. And so this is a really important series. And if you're coming now and you're just joining Apologia Church, you came at a perfect time because we're right now getting into the series. You're just at the beginning of all of this. So I would encourage you guys, as we go through this study, to keep sticking with us, keep coming on the Sundays, listen to the messages, digest, ask questions. We are, of course, going to have, it right near the end of this, an open question and answer portion where you're able to ask questions in, in service. We'll be able to kind of ask questions and, and shape this together as a family here at Apologia Church. So, But as we're going through this, work through this with us. We'll be giving you resources along the way. And so it's really a perfect time to join us. And um, 
let's talk about it. We're doing a series called Eschaton. And if you're new, that's a really cool word, obviously, Eschaton. I think uh, um, uh, Elliot was saying when he hears it, he was like, Esch Transformer. It's that kind of sounding name, right? But it's really much cooler than that. Uh, Eschaton is, is, is in reference to the climax of human history. Is really what it's about, which is a unique thing. And it's, it's a unique flavor to... Uh, the biblical worldview is that we, ha- we have a vision of the future going somewhere. Uh, history is not in flux and in chaos. It's not just atoms banging around and molecules mindlessly moving throughout a universe of just simply time and chance. It really is, history is going somewhere. There's a sovereign God behind it. And that leads us to a unique thing in the Bible that there's a, such a thing as an eschaton. There's a climax of history. It's moving somewhere. It's not just mindless and, and, and stupid and, and blind. It gets going somewhere. But it comes from the study of eschatology. And that is a compound of two Greek words, eschatos and logia. Eschatos meaning last things, essentially, and logia meaning the sto- eschatology is the study of last things. And for Christians, this is, this is, this is fun. This is exciting. And Christian bookstores sell out in the prophecy section, as, particularly in America. We have a fetish with end times. People love end time stuff. Uh, people are just, it, it, just enamored with the idea of, of, are we in the last days? Is Jesus coming like right now? Now? Is, is, is that the Antichrist? Who's the Antichrist? Where's the Antichrist? Like, you know, that's where we're stuck. It's unique to our generation that people have this uh, obsession with end times stuff. It's been something, it's as old as dirt. I mean, you can read Christians 200 years ago and 100 years ago talking about this guy's the Antichrist, that guy's the Antichrist, your mama's the Antichrist, you know, whatever. It was... You know, it's, it's, they just, we're, 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 we have a fetish with it. People would look at particular things being created, like a gun or, a, and they would say, that's evidence for end times. And, and they would go off into Revelation and look at things. Uh, in today's time, uh, John refers to these locusts, uh, the most highly biblical book in the Bible, locusts, which means a lot to a Jew. It's a symbol of something. And you see locusts, and they would say, that's like, it could only be today. We're in the last times. John didn't know what he was seeing. He was seeing helicopters. He called them locusts. That's all I could think. He could, it was locusts. And we just have this fetish. It's a popular thing, eschatology. It's so popular that right now, there is a movie in the making starring Nicolas Cage. Yes. Nicolas Cage. And it's the reboot of the Left Behind series movie. As if it wasn't bad enough, it needs to have a reboot to make it extra rebootedly bad, right? The Left Behind series and the idea that, you know, planes are going to come falling out of the sky as people are secretly raptured away. People have bumper stickers today. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. And so this is a popular thing and it's exciting for Christians. We have a fetish over it. And I want to say that you should be excited about eschatology because God speaks an awful lot about it. I'm not trying to diss the idea of being interested in end time stuff because God talks a tremendous amount about it, but it matters what you believe about it. And I'm going to just describe at least in two ways it matters. The study of last things matters. It counts. Listen, Christians are unified on on the essential, and that is that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he, he was perfect, that he perfectly satisfied the law of God, that he became a curse for us, that he died physically, that he ascended into heaven, that he is going to resurrect the dead, the just and the unjust, that there'll be a final moment in history where God 
really gives three on that. So amen all unified on that. Things have differences as to how it all plays out when we get on our way there to it. So for instance, I'm going to say that there are ultimately two views of eschatology. There's a lot of differences in between, but if you want to give it a foundation, you either have eschatologies of pessimism and defeat, or you have an eschatology of optimism. And what I mean by that is that you either believe that Jesus' kingdom in history is going to be victorious and that all the nations are going to come to God and that Jesus, before he returns, is going to return to a conquered world or you believe that before Jesus returns, we're ultimately going to get into defeat. The church is going to be ultimately, Jesus comes back to a conquered, ultimately, church. So what do we believe? And it matters. Eschatology matters in at least two ways. Follow me on this. It matters in a big, big way. Number one, it affects your view and reading of Scripture. If you have a funky eschatology, if you have a weird way that you interpret the Scriptures, that's in an unbiblical way, you're going to come to passages that just aren't going to make sense because you're going to be imposing onto the text something that's not actually there. And so what I'm going to say is this, and here's a big theological term you guys will love and you'll thank me for later, and you can pay me later for this, but... Um, the word is eisegesis. And what that means is you're going to put into the text something that's not actually there. You're going to engage in a, in a form of biblical interpretation that's not exegeting, drawing out of the text what it actually says. You're going to be pouring into the text foreign ideas that really aren't there in the first place. I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Um, when I used to hold to the popular view of eschatology uh, in the Left Behind series during Bible college, I... I uh, used to come to Matthew 24, and Jesus was speaking things in Matthew 24 that I could capture most of what Matthew said. I could really ask concepts, and I could really f- walk away feeling fed and feeling, well, I really get what this Messiah is talking about. But I'd come to Matthew 24, and because I had an understanding of Matthew 24 that was future, it was just the cuckoo land of linguistic jungles. All of a sudden, Matthew 24 turned into a foreign language to me. It's as though Jesus was speaking where I can understand him, and all of a sudden, Matthew 24, I just, it was just gibberish to me. And it wasn't so much that Jesus was speaking gibberish. It was that I was trying to impose upon Matthew 24 something that wasn't really there in the first place. And so eschatology matters in your reading of Scripture. It'll be destructive as you read Scripture if we hold to an unbiblical view of eschatology. And the next reason I think that eschatology is tremendously important for us as the people of God is is that it affects your witness and legacy in the world. Let Douglas Wilson, uh, someone that has uh, holds to our, our view of eschatology, post-millennialism, and victory of the Messiah in history, uh, Douglas Wilson was on my radio show once, and Douglas Wilson said that the situation works like this. You hit what you aim at. Okay, I'm going to say that to you again. You hit what you aim at. If you believe that we're going to be destroyed in history, ultimately beat up and the church is defeated, where Jesus has to come back and rescue a defeated church, if you truly believe that hell is going, sorry, uh, uh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's no use polishing brass on a sinking ship, and the worse things get for us, the better chance that Jesus is coming to get us off this stinking rock anyways, right? If you believe that, then that's going to affect your witness in the world. You see, if I see the world collapsing around me, and I believe that's actually a sign that Jesus is going to return because it's getting really bad, it's going to affect how I minister in that world. It's going to affect the legacy that I leave behind for my kids. 
I'll give you an example. This week we um, interviewed Gary DeMar, the president of the American Vision on Apologia Radio. would really encourage you guys to check that out. ApologiaRadio.com. It's the last episode we put up. It's two hours on this, and it is really fantastic. Gary DeMar brought up a really good example of this. He says that there's almost a schizophrenia that exists in the Christianly because of a bad eschatology. And it works out like this. You can have a Christian conference that's like a Christian worldview conference. And you go in there and you get trained on all kinds of stuff. Like, uh, this is happening to today politically. How does the Bible respond to that? How do we get into this area? Hey, what about this issue of the sect nationally? How do we respond to that? How do we rescue people? Drug addiction. And how does the Christian worldview respond to that? How about this, um, this overwhelming influence of secularism and, and, and atheism and agnosticism, how do we respond to this? And there becomes a sort of schizophrenia, right? Why? Because you can go to this worldview conference where on the one hand you're being taught, this is what God says about this, here's how we respond to this. And then on the other hand, you have a speaker come up and say, hey, all this stuff happening in the world today is signs we're at the end, it's the last days, Antichrist could be on the scene right now. Who is it? Who is it? You're looking around for him. And it becomes a schizophrenia because you walk out of this conference on the one hand saying what? We gotta address these issues, we gotta speak into this, we gotta change this, bring the gospel, and on the other hand go, hey, any minute Jesus is coming back, right? And it becomes a spiritual schizophrenia that exists there, and so that's why I think it's important. And so I wanna talk to you about if you've missed what you've missed. Number one, foundation number one over all of the study of history, and this is very exciting, and this should be something that really transforms you even right now, is that the first foundation of the eschaton, the climax of history is this, the sovereign God over history. Okay, now if you, if you, if you want to grasp something right now that you have to get, and you have to get it because it has far-reaching implications beyond just eschatology, ready? The sovereign God of history. This is like a hooting and hollering moment, believe me. That God is sovereign. There's not a maverick molecule in the entire universe. He controls all things. He is completely and totally and utterly sovereign. There's not a thing that happens in this universe that hasn't first been strained through His sovereign hand. Every detail of your life and every detail of my life is in his control. We're talking about the God in Isaiah that throws a smackdown on idols. Did you know that God does this? He makes fun of idols. Did you know that? It's awesome when he does it. I actually rather enjoy it. Um, when God talks to idols, he'll, he'll say things like this. He'll say, go ahead and have your idols uh, tell you the future. Now, that's a problem for idols because idols don't do a lot of talking, okay? And so... Having idols tell you the future is something an idol can't do because, number one, it's a false god. It doesn't control the future. It's not sovereign. And so God says to the, to the Israelites, to his people, he says, hey, go ahead, have your gods tell you the future. So that's pretty cool. But then he says another thing, too, pretty powerful. Listen to this. He says another challenge to idols. He says, have your gods tell you the past and why it happened the way that it did. you got to stop for a second. got to think through that for a moment. Every single person in this room... All of you, you can do it. You can tell everybody what happened in the past, right? You could tell me your personal history. You could say, well, this happened. You could tell me some of the history of, of, of the 21st century. You could tell me some of the history of the 19th century. You could say, this happened. But you know what you can never do as a creature is you can never say, and here's why. You see, God can do both. He can tell you what the future is going to be because he maintains it, controls it, and he declares the end from the beginning. And he also can tell you the past and why it happened the way that it did. Only God can say, this is why. 
And you've got to think about the uniqueness of that is God is able to speak into your life and He could say to you, this happened in your life because I was doing this. And that's a sovereign God. And all of Scripture gives to us the picture of that kind of God. He's not a God of plan B's or contingencies that says, oops, well, I'll fix that. He's the kind of God that you can rely on that says in Romans chapter 8, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the God we're talking about. The God behind Romans 8.28. You know the verse, right? God causes what? All things to work together for good to those who love him. The called according to whose purpose? His purpose. That this God works all things, the Bible says, after the counsel of His will. And that all the inhabitants of the earth, the Bible says, are counted as nothing. And that God, in Daniel says, it says that He does according to His will in the host of heaven and, and this is trippy, among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say, what have you done? You know what that means? I think a lot of times as Christians, we like to say, God, he certainly has control over heaven. He's got that realm covered because, hey, he's God. That's where he lives, right? <laughs> but we don't like to say that God is really sovereign over the events of human history because we see a lot of damage. We see a lot of brokenness. We let us see a lot of sin and a lot of evil. And we, we don't want to indict God in that, but God is not having that. He says he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And that God works all things after the counsel of his will for his glory. So that's the first foundation. Number one, we're talking about a sovereign God. The only reason this makes sense that history has a climax is because you've got that kind of God behind it. The God of the scriptures, the God of the Old and New Testaments. And number two, the foundation, if you missed it, was this, that creation is good, baby. It's good. We have, we have these weird views as Christians that we've picked up from pagans over the years. Almost like Gnostic. You know what? Most Christians today fall into like a soft-boiled Gnosticism where Gnostics believe that like flesh was evil and like God ain't having that. So that's why God, uh, sorry, God wouldn't have become flesh. Sorry, excuse me. God wouldn't have become flesh because flesh is evil. It's dirty. God would never do that. And so Christians today have fallen into sort of like that kind of soft-boiled Gnosticism. We see the creation as because there's sin, it's kind of, it's, it's bad. Like it's ruined now. It's not good. God says it's good, baby. And the cultural mandate was to be fruitful, multiply, and to subdue the earth. What did he tell Adam? He says, take dominion over the earth. And so creation is fundamentally good. There was a cultural mandate that God told his image bearers to take dominion over the earth. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And yes, we like that part. But the rest of it, that was a, that was a grenade. There we go. Okay. Um, we like the part of be fruitful and multiply. We go, I know what that means. Take some of that. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The next part is, to have subdue the earth, take dominion over it. That's good stuff. It's good to do that. And so that was the cultural mandate. The next thing we talked about was that Jesus is the second Adam who reverses and defeats the curse. Where Adam failed as that image bearer of God, Jesus is the second Adam. Where Adam brought death, Jesus brings us righteousness and eternal life. Where Adam causes us all to fall into sin, Jesus, everyone in him, Paul says in Romans 5, all those who are in Christ are made alive. Whereas Adam fails 
and that mandate to be the image, the perfect image of God in the world, to bring light, the light of God to the world, and to subdue the earth, Jesus comes as the second Adam, and it says in the Psalms, He, this Messiah, shall have dominion from sea to sea. And so we saw that. But the next thing I want to, I want to talk to you about, and this is what I love, and for those of you guys that have been with me for a couple of years, you know that I love this topic. Um, if, you, if you haven't heard me talk on it before, um, I would encourage you guys to just Google search Redemption Radio, uh, look up Jeff Durbin, and then uh, look up uh, Messiah. And I did two hours on the radio with reference to how we know that Jesus is truly the Messiah from the Old Testament. It is awesome. So I want to get you guys to this. The uniqueness of the scriptures, that the Messiah's victory is the theme. Okay? Now, get this. Your Bible consists of how many books and letters? 66, okay, of a period of about 1,500 years of writing and authorship. You've got different genres of writing. You've got stuff that is like poetic. You've got historical narrative. You've got apocalyptic literature. It's just different genres. And you've got different authors over this long period of time. And the trippy thing is, is there's a unified thread. And the threat is this Messiah is going to come and he is going to have victory and he is going to bring glory to God through the redemption of a people. Listen, I'm telling you right now, the Old Testament, those 39 books of the Old Testament, those books completed long before Jesus came, they tell you and I the entire story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and victory in history. Did you know that? I can take you through the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the books that are written long before Jesus comes. And I could take you through those books and show you every detail of Jesus' life before he comes. I can give you every detail of Jesus' life necessary to know him as Savior and as Lord in books that are written before he even comes. I like them apples. Is it warm in here? It looks like a little Baptist church right now. Get those, those papers going now. Come on now. Let's go. All we're missing is the amens and everything else, okay? All right, there you go. Okay. Hey, hey uh, Jerry, could you check that air conditioning and make sure that it's, it's turned down correctly? Or L8, okay. Okay, then let's take you to this. Everyone go to your Bibles to John chapter 5, verse 39. John chapter 5, verse 39. John's a New Testament book written by Jesus' buddy. John chapter 5, verse 39. New Testament. I'm going to read to you what Jesus says. It's very powerful. I'm going to underline it, highlight it, put a star by it, but it's very important about the scriptures pointing to Jesus. And if you can understand eschaton, the climax of history, you got to grasp this. This is really cool, guys. John chapter 5, verse 39. Listen to what Jesus says. After he talks about being the bread of life and he's come down from heaven not to do his own will. Sorry, that's John 6. Sorry. John 5, 39. Wrong text there. Okay. Look what he says here. I'll start one verse ahead. You don't have his word living in you because you don't believe the one he sends. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Yet they testify about me. And you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Can I, can I say this to you? Particularly for those of you guys in the room that might be uh, naturally skeptical, uh, when, when natural skeptic when you come to the scriptures, this is important for you to hear. One of the unique things of scripture is not only that does, does, is God the foundation of all reasoning and all knowledge and everything else in the first place, but one thing that you should, you should, you should definitely pay attention to is the fact that one of Jesus' claims was this. I'm not coming here on my own accord just out of nowhere, like some 
strange new plan B. That Jesus was constantly pointing people to the fact that it was the scriptures that foretold his coming. And not in a vague kind of way, but in a specific kind of way, down to every detail. So that Jesus tells people, look, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. It's those that testify about me. That's an astonishing claim. And so when I talk about eschaton, I want to just, I want to encourage you guys, the starting place for all of this is not in the New Testament, taking little pot shot little verses here or there. It's beginning in the Old Testament. Listen, if you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to know who Yeshua, the Mashiach, Jesus, the Messiah truly is, you don't start in the New Testament. You have to start in the Old Testament. And just how far back in the Old Testament do you have to start? Well, Look what, John's, look what Jesus says right after that. In John chapter 5, verse 46, look what he says. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, that is, that's astonishing. You've got you to gotta hit the pause button for a second. Question, who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Good job. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, okay? Moses, the lawgiver, Sinai. This Moses, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you'd believe in me because he wrote about me. And you think, scratching your head for a second, you're thinking, Moses wrote about Jesus? Like, where? It's everywhere. It's all over. Moses wrote about Jesus. The entire Bible is about Mashiach. It's about the Messiah. And Jesus, interestingly, challenges the people in his day who are the skeptics. And he's saying to them, look, you pour over the scriptures. You think you have life in them. Moses wrote about me. That's where you find out about me in that story. And there is a, a really spectacular Bible study that I'm sure all of us would have loved to have been a part of. And it's in Luke chapter 24. In reference to this again, go over now to Luke. Luke 24. And this is pretty awesome. Luke 24. Just go to the left there. Twenty-four, twenty-five. Now, this is happening on the heels of a situation, guys. Listen, I'm going to give you the background so you understand what's going on here. Jesus had just been crucified. Imagine the scene. Listen, you would have seen this brutalized man. He had the skin torn from his back. The cat of nine tails would have ripped him open. Jesus was crucified as a common criminal in front of everybody. You would have been able to see it and watch the whole thing happen. Blood pouring out of him. He went from trial to trial, being beaten, being whipped, having his beard pulled from his face, having a crown of thorns smashed into his head. And as he hung there on that cross, he died. He died before the Roman guards actually broke his legs to make sure they could hasten the death and to make it quick. He died. And so what they did to make sure that he was dead is they took a spear and they pierced it through his rib cage or it pierced his heart sack. Jesus was dead. And, and listen, his disciples were as confused as anybody else. Because it's really difficult to grasp somebody that you love and you've walked with to see them dead. I mean, mangled and bloodied and dead and wrapped up in about a hundred pounds of burial cloth and ointments and everything else and put into a tomb with a rock or stone rolled over its place with a guard of Romans to guard the tomb. It, it, they were struggling with this. And on that first day, these disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus is already alive. 
He's already come to life as prophesied in the Old Testament and by his own lips. And these guys are, are tripping out. They're thinking, Jesus like, what are you guys talking about? All right, they're on the road and Jesus walking with them. And can you imagine the scene? Bunch of dummies. Like they're just walking with Jesus. They're like, oh, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one. Where have you been, dude? Like asking Jesus, where have you been? You don't know what's going on? Like he's dead. It's over. We thought this messianic movement was it. He's obviously not. And I love what Jesus says in response to their doubt. He says, verse 25, how unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning, ready, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And that's exciting. Guys, you have got to be excited about that. Listen closely to this. When you look at other man-made religion, it's insane. There's false prophecies up and down and sideways. Look at the, the, uh, the um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in New York. Man, in the last 200 years, they've had so many false prophecies, your head will spin. They had false prophecies in the 70s. They lost most of their membership, and they just keep on trucking along. Joseph Smith, if you look at his past and history and Mormonism, it's, in, it's just mind-boggling, the amount of false prophecies, the character. What kind of person do you have to be, ask yourself this, to have 60 of your neighbors write a public statement about your character as a con artist? <laughs> And the fact that Joseph Smith pulls together this entire history out of thin air makes it all up. This unhistorical claim in the Book of Mormon. You look at histories like that and religions like that and you see they're man-made, they collapse. But Jesus, he comes to his disciples raised from the dead. No one's ever done that. Buddha, Zoroaster, Confucius, Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell, Mary Baker Eater, all these people, they came, they died, and they stayed that way. Jesus is alive. And then when he comes back, he sees the talk with his disciples as he's walking on the road. And I love what he says to them. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And the beginning with Moses. What? That is seriously mind-boggling. He starts in Genesis explaining to them everything the scriptures spoke concerning me. That's awesome. So when you're reading your Old Testament, you're reading the story of Jesus. Yeah, it's history. Yes, the Jews escaped the, 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 the Egypt to the Red Sea. Yes, they had a kingdom. Yes, David did what he did. Yes, Solomon was there. Yes, the Jews were in the Babylonian exiles. That's real history. But it's not just history. It is his story. It's the story of the Messiah. And the amazing thing is, and this has got to trip you out, it just starts in Moses. And so I am quite sure that I'm not going to do any justice in this Bible study with that Bible study he did with them. But I'll give it a shot, okay? So the first thing we have to do to understand eschaton is we've got to go back to Moses and see what did Moses say about this Messiah. This messianic figure, what did he say? How did Moses talk about Jesus? Because Jesus, when he talked to people, he says, you want to know about me? You want to know my story? You started Moses. And so let's go. Let's get to Moses. Where's that start, guys? 
you're already little mini Bible scholars. Good job, guys. Genesis. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to go fast. I am in no way going to do justice to all these themes, but in order for you to understand our position as a church, that Jesus is a victorious Messiah, and that his kingdom will be victorious in history, you've got to start in Moses and see what did Moses say about this Messiah. And the first thing you've got to do is go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We were already there last week, but I need you to see it and understand it, and see that this is the starting point. Your Bible opens up with the story of Jesus, and it starts with the fall. Genesis 3.15. Here we go. I want, I want you guys, if you're taking notes, to write this down. Moses recorded the Proto-Evangelium. What? Proto, Proto. I almost said Frodo. Frodo, don't wear the ring. Proto-Evangelium. Proto the first... Proclamation of the gospel is in Genesis 3.15. Did you know that? Your Bible starts with the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Luke's daughter's name is Evangeline. And they get that from the word for gospel. And that's where that word comes from. And the Proto-Evangelium is the first proclamation of the gospel. So that Moses spoke about the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3. And here's where it is, guys. He says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Satan. He's put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, get this. What has just happened? God has created and it's awesome. And then they fall and they rebel against God and God promises immediately what he's going to do to reverse it all. Listen, your Bible doesn't start off with this confusing moment where just something happens and God's going, let's see how this all plays out. The fall happens and not only does God say in Scripture that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, you better love that. This is planned before the world started. But in Genesis 3, God's fall happens. First thing God does is he says, Satan, this is what's up. Enmity, hostility between your seed and the woman's seed. By the way, why is it significant that he says woman's seed? Why? Virgin birth. It's not the man's seed. In that culture, you don't talk about someone's offspring as a woman's seed. You just didn't do it. It was countercultural for Moses to record this in this culture. To refer to somebody as the woman's seed was a strange way of speaking. And so when God says hostility between your seed and the woman's seed, but watch what he says. He said, he, the woman's seed, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So Moses talked about Jesus in Genesis chapter 3. How do you get that? First of all, this deliverer is going to be from the woman. Isaiah gives the same story that a virgin will conceive and give birth. You should call his name Emmanuel, which means what, guys? God with us. The virgin birth is prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 7, and lo and behold, here comes the angel to Mary telling this virgin young girl that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, and her answer is, how so? I have not known a man. And it's almost like, are we reading our Bibles? What does the Bible say? Virgin is going to give birth to this seed. But interestingly, what does it say is going to happen with the seed? He is going to, what? Crush the serpent's head. He's going to deliver the death blow, but be wounded in the process. And in history, here comes the virgin-born Messiah, Jesus, 
On the day of the atonement where he died for the sins of his people, Jesus goes to Golgotha, which means what? The place of the skull. And here you have the Son of Man, the second Adam, perfect image of God, sinless, taking the curse and dying. And his cross was piercing that skull. If you were there that day in the distance and you were watching Jesus die, you would have seen his cross piercing the skull. It was screaming at us. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. And so Genesis chapter 3, first place it talks about Jesus, the woman's seed, going to destroy the work of the devil. Number two, Moses recorded the first sacrifice and covering. And this is awesome because I have to confess to you, I want to just be transparent, I missed it. For years of my walk with Jesus, I missed it. How significant it is that in Genesis 3, God says, curse is coming, right? He says, serpent going to be destroyed. He, the woman's seed, is going to be bruised in the process. But then God does something. Adam and Eve are naked, all right? And there's a lot more to that than just being physically naked. They weren't like, oh, I had no idea. I was hanging out. I had no idea. Like, excuse me. Like, and, and then they covered themselves. No, there was something different there. It had to do with they were open now and shamed before God. And then God has something happen. It says that the first animal dies. Look what it says. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of the skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Guys, it wasn't that God was like, oh, you're naked, you need something to put on. It was that God had the first animals die. How did God have them clothed in animal skins? What had to happen to the animal? It had to die. The first picture of a sacrifice, the innocent for the guilty, was given that day. And I want to tell you something. Are you ready? Who killed the animals? Who killed the animals? God. Who displayed the first innocent for guilty sacrifice, death as a punishment and penalty for sin? Who did it? God did it. And then what did God do with Adam and Eve? He covered them in the skins of the animal. He covers their nakedness with the skins of the innocent sacrifice. How does the Bible talk about Jesus? What does God do with you and I? Who is Jesus? He's the innocent Lamb of God. What does John the Baptist say? Jesus' cousin, when he first sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus dies, he dies as the innocent sacrifice. And I got to ask you a question. Years ago, it was interesting, years ago when Mel Gibson made the movie The Passion, I mean, you guys saw The Passion. When he made the movie The Passion, there was a real problem because in the movie, he accurately reflected the Jews said, basically, his blood be upon us and our children. And there was a big debate going on. Well, who killed the Messiah? And people were saying, well, the Jews were responsible that day of, of handing him over. And then people were saying, no, Jews saying, we're not taking responsibility for that. We didn't kill the Messiah. And some people were saying, oh, the Romans, the Romans, they killed the Messiah. But ultimately, let me tell you this right now, who killed the Messiah? God killed the Messiah. Isaiah 53 says very clearly, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who killed the Messiah? God. Who gave, to, who gave Jesus over ultimately to the authorities? God. Right? Doesn't Jesus say to Pilate, Pilate's like, don't you know? I've got the power to let you go, Jesus. Give, give me something. Jesus, give me something to shoot at. I've got the power to let you go. And what does Jesus say to him? You don't have any power 
except that which is given to you by God. So in the beginning of the story, the woman's seed's going to crush the head of the serpents, and it says very clearly, God has these first animals die, and he covers Adam and Eve in the skins of the animal, and Jesus is that Lamb of God, who is sinless and perfect, the innocent for the guilty, took the curse, and you, believer, saint, child of God, when you have trusted in Christ, you've been joined to him. The Bible says you are in Christ. You are covered, clothed in Christ. You are credited his righteousness. God has taken your nakedness and your shame and he has covered you in the skin, in the animal, innocent sacrifice, righteousness of the one who died for you. Do you see? That's how Moses talked about this Mashiach, this Messiah. So Moses talked about Jesus in Genesis chapter 3. Let me give you another one. Moses recorded the Noahic covenants. The Noahic covenants. Adam and Eve move through time now with their posterity, their children, and then it moves to a dude named Noah. Did you know Hollywood is really digging on the fact that Christians like good biblical movies, right? The History Channel just did their show on, on the Bible. I didn't see it. Uh, I heard mixed reviews on it, but it was very, very popular. It made them some bank, okay? Hollywood's going, hmm, Interesting. The Passion of the Christ made some money. So Hollywood's going, hmm. And so now, Russell Crowe is Noah. Do you know that? They made, they're making a movie now about Noah, and Russell Crowe is Noah. Yeah, interesting. So you'll, you'll get to see more. Hopefully, hopefully it's accurate and it's good. But go to Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. I can't do the whole story of the flood. The world is screaming to us about a worldwide flood. Geomorphology, the study of the shape of the earth, screams to us about a worldwide flood in our history. There are over 200 cultures that have a flood narrative and tradition in their own history. The world testifies to a worldwide flood, not only in geomorphology, but also in the cultures of the world. The Hopi Indian tribe, when you talk to them about their history, they'll tell you their history happens through time, they say after a worldwide flood, that their peoples crossed over the oceans by island hopping to get to the Americas after a worldwide flood. It's everywhere. There was a worldwide flood. But what happens is Noah and his family are safely preserved from this judgment where? In the ark. And then when they get to the mountains, this is powerful. Genesis chapter, God reaffirms here. You've got to catch this. It's awesome. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Uh, I have a question. Um, is that the first time God said that? Wait, what happened in the beginning? What did God say? Multiply, subdue the earth. Now, judgment comes. What happens? They get off the ark. Now, what does God say? He reaffirms the cultural mandates. Remember when I was saying to you that creation is fundamentally good and that God hasn't said, oh, well, sin's really corrupted this, so we'll just start like a plan B now. God's answer is that you be fruitful, multiply, you take dominion over the earth. That's what God is about. He is going to be victorious in history over the whole earth. Sin doesn't, doesn't, doesn't thwart God's purposes. God preserves Noah and his family, and he says, guys, he reaffirms it. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill the earth. But I want you, I want you to hear what he says. 
chapter, uh, verse 8, he says this, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am confirmed my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all the wildlife on the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I confirm my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by the waters of a flood. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And what God is describing there is he will never give another worldwide flood to destroy every living thing. And that's a covenant that God gives. And it says, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between you and every living creature with you for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever a form Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. What did God did, uh, do? What did God did? <laughs> what God did? What did God do? He reaffirms the cultural mandate. Take dominion over the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Here's my bow. Here's the sign of that covenant. That picture, the Bible says, that whole thing Christ is that ark in the New Testament. All of us come to hide in him. But God reaffirms that. I want you to hear that. The next thing is Moses recorded the Abrahamic covenant. Now this is the centerpiece. Listen, if you, if you were checking out for a minute there, if you were losing track for a second, this is where you need to zero in because this is, this is it. This is the highlight of New Testament theology this is what Paul constantly is going back to. You got to know this. In Genesis, chapter Moses still, Genesis chapter 12, you got to hear that Moses recorded the Abrahamic covenants. <clears throat> Who's Abraham? He wasn't born of Christian or Jewish parents. He comes from pagan parents. God redeems him from parents that aren't like these devoutly Jewish parents like Shalom. They were like, pagans and he gets Abraham and chooses him by his grace and he makes a promise to him in Genesis 12 this is the promise the Lord said to Abram go out from your land your relatives and your father's house in the land that I will show you I will make you into a great nation I will bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you I will curse those who treat you with contempt here we go you ready eschaton eschaton you need to hear this Underline this. Understand it. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 now. He says this, And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Get to hear that. Now move over another page. Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. Look what God says to him. After Lot had separated from him, verse 14, The Lord said to Abram, Look from that place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever. All the land that you see, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. Then move over to the next chapter, Genesis 15. Look what it says in Genesis 15, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. He's talking about Ishmael. Abraham jumped the gun, had a baby with his concubine, not what he was supposed to see as the blessing and the promise. God says, not this one through Hagar, not Ishmael. I'm going to give you a son with Sarah. And it's going to be your son. 
that I give you the promise through. He's the promised one. Look what he says. This one will not be your heir, referring to Ishmael. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you're able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Now here's the centerpiece verse. Get this, guys. Grab it. Ready? Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. You need to hear that. Abraham is the father of all those who are blessed in this Messiah. Listen, God promised that through Abraham's seed, he was going to bless all the nations. God was saying, look, if you could count the stars, that's how your descendants are going to be. Like the sand, you're not going to be able to count them. All the nations are going to be blessed in Abraham. And get this, this is where you have to hear the difference. Every man-made religion cannot offer you this. The center of the Abrahamic covenant listen, was that God was doing this, not Abraham. This is before the law was given. Guys, this is over 400 years before the law was given by Moses. What did Abraham offer to God here? Nothing. What did he offer in the sense of a ritual or a sign? Decision. This is before he offered his son Isaac on the altar. This is before Moses was even a twinkling in his mother and father's eye. Long before. And God says to Abraham, in you shall all the earth be blessed. And it says this, Abraham believed God, and what happened, guys? It was credited to him as righteous, righteousness. Listen, this is, where, this is where the rubber meets the road right now. Right now. Eschaton is about God's victory in history. Eschaton is this summed up. God said that through Abraham's seed, he was going to bless all the nations. That he would give him descendants as numerous as the stars. And here's the question. Ready? Watch this. How was Abraham justified before God? Did he do anything? Did he give anything to God? Did he take cash out of his pocket, write a check, say, okay, God, how much do I owe you for whatever? Did he do anything ritual-wise? As a matter of fact, when God has this covenant really expressed with Abraham, what does he do? He has Abraham go to sleep while he has the animals split in two. And who walks through the animals as a sign that he's obligating only himself? God does. What was Abraham doing? He's asleep. He's doing nothing. That was a sign before God. God's saying, I'm going to do this. Now question, watch this. How is that fulfilled in Jesus? How does Jesus fulfill that? You ever notice something? And does this bug you? If, if you're new to the Bible, admit it. When you, go to Je- when you went to Luke and Matthew for the first time or some of the books of the Bible, you read about all the genealogies. Admit it. You're bored to tears, weren't you? Admit it. You read, the, you read the genealogies, you're bored to tears. And you're reading through it, and you're like, do I really have to read all this? Do I have to read all these things? How about when I read Jesus' genealogies? Do I really have to read every name of the guy? Listen, if God didn't have those names put there and show those genealogies, you would have never known that he was faithful to his promise to Abraham. Those genealogies matter because they testify to God's faithfulness to his covenant. Who is Jesus? He's the descendant of Abraham. He traces his genealogy back to Abraham. Jesus is the seed that God promised to bless the whole world through. And you need to hear this. Watch this. How does Jesus answer this? This is awesome. Go to Romans chapter 4 really fast. That's your New Testament. Go to the right. I told you I'd like to hear the turn of the pages. Dr. Martin used to always say it's good for the soul, so let's hear it. Romans chapter 4 together in Jesus. Jesus says, Moses spoke about me. How so? In the Abrahamic covenants, this seed of Abraham was going to bless 
the whole world. All the nations will be blessed in believing Abraham. Here we go, guys. Ready? Here's where you grab it. Here's where the rubber meets the road with Jesus, the Messiah. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul, by inspiration, now gives us the answer. For the promise of Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is canceled for the law produces wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Listen, what's he talking about? Very simple, guys. Listen, catch this. He's talking about the fact that if people were trying to get justified by the law of Moses saying, if I do these things, this is how I get right with God. If you need to hear the one distinction between biblical relationship with God and every single form of man-made religion, even religions with crosses on the walls, the distinction is this. The only people who are children of Abraham are those who are of the same faith as Abraham. And what kind of faith was that? It was a faith apart from works. It was a faith apart from law. It was a faith of reception. It means that they just received this blessing and this promise. Listen, you're not a child of Abraham because you got a cross on your neck. You're not a child of Abraham because you have crosses on your walls. You're not a child of Abraham because you have gone through some sort of a ritual or a class or you've done certain deeds or you think because today I did really good for God so that counts sort of towards my merit for God. Listen, if you're depending upon your own works and your own righteousness and your own law, you are no child of Abraham and no heir according to this promise. So what does Paul say in Romans 4? I want you to capture it because it's what eschaton is all about. Listen, did you hear it? Did you hear it? Romans 4, did you hear it? Chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through law. What? Abraham's descendants were going to inherit the what? The world. Does God intend in history for his promise to Abraham to be thwarted? Does he intend in history for the descendants of Abraham to somehow be stopped and blocked. Is it, is, it, is it interesting at all to us as a church that when Jesus is talking, he says he'll build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? He says this seed of Abraham, the promised one, he says what? The meek shall inherit the earth. We'd, we've forgotten that as Christians today in our culture. We've forgotten that the promise to Abraham that his descendants were going to fill the whole world, that in him all the nations were going to be blessed. We've forgotten that Abraham believed that his descendants would inherit the world. We've forgotten that the promise was that his descendants would be so numerous, it'd be like looking at the stars, you couldn't even count them. And what is the promise in the New Testament that if you have trusted in this Messiah through faith, apart from your works, you've come to God like Abraham with these empty hands and with a mouth that is just open to receive living waters. If you come to God like that, you are a descendant of Abraham. Think about it for a second. Let's do some racial profiling here. Let's do some racial profiling for a second. We can do that right now. It's appropriate now in the Abrahamic covenant. White dude. Look around the room. We got black people, white people. Don't be uncomfortable about that. This is awesome. White people, black people, Mexican people. We have 
all kinds of strange backgrounds represented in here, right? And you know what's glorious about that? Descendants of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. Do you see what this room encompasses right now? It is just screaming in high definition detail that God kept his promise to Abraham. But listen, what does the Bible interpret it as? It said that his descendants would inherit the world. What does Jesus come saying to his people that the meek shall inherit the earth? What does the Bible say? Jesus says you pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, that's all encompassing. Did Jesus believe that his church was going to be defeated in history? Absolutely not. Unless we believe, of course, that God's covenant with Abraham could be thwarted, which it cannot be. Unless we believe that the Bible is wrong where it says that Abraham's descendants are going to inherit the world. Next one. Moses recorded the Exodus. This is awesome. I'm going to go fast with this one. You don't even have to go to the text because you know the story. Listen close. And you don't do what to its bones, guys. Don't break its bones. This slips that in there. They're like, all right, don't break its bones. Okay. God says, take a lamb, no spot, no blemish. Don't break its bones. You take the blood of that lamb, you put it over your doorposts as far as the lintels. It's a sign of a cross. And the people of Israel were in Egypt with everybody else. And God says that when his judgment came, it would pass over that house on account of the blood of the lamb, the spotless lamb, whose bones weren't broken. And that when they had this happen, they were going to escape from their bondage and slavery to cross to that Red Sea to go into the promised land of relationship with God. How did Moses talk about Jesus? Right there. You think, how? Well, what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When did Jesus die? Passover. What does Jesus say about us? John chapter 8, whoever commits sin is a what? Slave of sin. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, died during Passover. The wrath of God passed over us, was absorbed fully and finally in this Lamb of God. And do you know what's unique? Is the Roman guards, soldiers, came to the thieves next to Jesus and they broke their legs. What did they not do to the lamb's legs? They didn't break his bones. And what happens to you and I? The wrath of God, it passes over us, is absorbed in this lamb, so that you and I exit our slavery to sin, to now enter into that promised land, that heavenly city, that relationship with God. Do you see how Moses talked about Jesus? Moses spoke about Jesus in the Exodus. In the wandering in the wilderness, the Jews are complacent, right? I don't like the manna. It's fallen from heaven. I don't like being protected by God by this cloud by day. <laughs> Just crazy. And what's amazing is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, he tells them that the reason he brought them through the wilderness wanderings is because he's trying to have Israel, who's supposed to be light to the world, understand that they're not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you know what? They failed. They didn't do it. And that's why they wandered the 40 days, nights. And he's tempted. And it's not an accident that it was 40. Because how long did Israel go in the wilderness? 40. And Jesus does what Israel didn't do. Where the Israelites were to be victorious and be light to the world and depend upon God, they're ticked at the manna. Jesus is starving. 
Satan comes at the last day when he's at his weakest point and he offers Jesus something and Jesus says what? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What does this perfect Israelite do? He does what Israel didn't do. In the wilderness wanderings, they failed in every way that God tested them. Jesus is victorious as the perfect Israelite. Moses talked about Jesus. It was the foreshadowing of things to come. How about this one? Moses recorded the temple sacrifices and priestly duties. This is awesome. This is awesome. And this is another thing, ready? For those of you guys that are new to the church, maybe you're in this room right now, and you're like, I think this is all just crazy. Admit it. You've read the Old Testament, and you get to passages in Leviticus, and you're like, huh? Why a temple? Why animal sacrifices? Why like this? Why like that? Why so precise? Why a veil? Why a perfectly cubed room called the holiest place? Why? Why a priest? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Why every year a bull sacrifice for his own sins and then two goats, one the scapegoat, one who dies? Why? Why all these things? And the truth is, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you'd believe in me because he wrote about me. Did you know the Bible says very clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it talks about since law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You know what that's saying? The law was a shadow of Jesus and the things to come. Watch this. If, if you could take your Bible and imagine for a second that you, you have, your, you have your, your New Testament and your Old Testament. I want you to picture for a second, what does it mean that Jesus, what, what, was it, what does it mean this shadow? If you could picture Jesus standing in the middle between your Old and New Testament, Old and New, picture Jesus standing right between those Testaments. And I want you to, I want you to visualize now the sun beating down on Jesus, coming this way, and here's Jesus, what would be cast into the Old Testament? The shadow. Jesus is the substance of all that the law and the prophets was pointing to. So you might be asking, well, how? What with the priests, the temple, the sacrifices? Well, well, first of all, the temple. Jesus is interesting. You know, he comes in the, in the first century. They're still building up this temple. They're spending a lot of time on it, a lot of money on it. They're building this temple. And Jesus says something that is sounds probably stark, raving mad to them. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And they're like, Psh. Come on. You know how long it's taking this build? Come on now. You're going to destroy it, raise it up again in three days? And Jesus was speaking about what? The temple of his body. Who's the temple, the eternal temple all of us come to hide in? Who is it? Jesus is that temple. He is something greater, Jesus says, than the temple is here. He is that temple forever, and all of us enter into him. Jesus is the temple. How about the priests and the sacrifices? How about this? Leviticus 16 is awesome. Yom Kippur was crazy. Here's the thing. This priest, who's also a sinner, gets up, Yom Kippur, every single year. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. He gets up. The first thing he's got to do is something that's kind of, kind of should bother the Israelites. The first thing he's got to do is he's got to do what? He's got to offer a sacrifice for whom? Himself, which should kind of bother you because he's supposed to be representing you before God, but he's got to offer a sacrifice for himself. It's kind of a problem. What's the problem with that priesthood? He's a sinner. You got a sinner representing sinners. 
kind of a problem. How about this also? Bulls don't take away anybody's sin. Bulls are not made in the image of God. An animal dying is not an image bearer of God. The best thing an animal sacrifice can do is point to something greater. It can only show you that there has to be death as a consequence for sin. There has to be blood shed. There has to be an innocent for guilty sacrifice. But let me tell you something right now. You can kill a kajillion. Is that a word? Bulls. That's right. It is now. You can kill as many bulls as you want from now until all of eternity. And it's not taking away anybody's sin ultimately. You need a perfect sacrifice that ready is a human that can represent you. So when this priest on Yom Kippur is offering the sacrifice for his own sin, A, he's a sinner. B, he's giving a bull. Kind of a problem. The second thing is after he offers his own sacrifice, what does he do? He goes and he has two goats before the temple. And these two goats are there and they cast lots to see which goat is going to be the scapegoats and which goat is going to die and take that penalty. And so what they do is he would have the first goat die and he would go and he would offer the sacrifice and present the blood to show evidence for death. The interesting thing is though, is this priest, they have to make sure they protect him because he might die. And so when he goes there between, beyond the veil into the holiest place, he has to wear a rope. And he has to have bells in his clothes. And he has to never stop moving so that if you hear the bells stop rattling, you know he died. And you got to drag his body out. All right? So here's the deal. The priest goes in, he offers a sacrifice in the holiest place. Here's the problem. The people of God can't just go strolling in there, right? Like if he says, hey, I forgot my blah, blah, blah. You can't go, oh, I'll come bring it to you right now. Let me get it for you. You can't walk in there. It symbolized God's very presence. And the people of God were kept outside of it. Mark that down in your mind. He would then come out and represent himself to the people. Can you imagine the cheers and the applause, and then he'd go and he would lay his hands heavy on the scapegoat and he would confess the sins of the people of Israel onto that goat and they would lead that goat out of the city away from the people and you would watch that goat that had the sins put onto it. You would watch it go off into the distance and disappear in the distance. Rabbinic tradition says, because it's that goat, be strange to have that goat come wandering back into town two days later. They didn't want that, right? Can you imagine everyone's like, oh, the goat, right? It's back, don't touch it, right? Because it symbolized their sins being transferred to it. And rabbinic tradition says, this is the only reason, we, we don't even know this is true, but this is what they say, that they would take that goat off of a cliff and throw it off the cliff to make sure there was no chance ever that that goat would come back. What's that mean? God says, I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. You get that? You get it now? As far as the east is from the west, they watch that goat go away and gone. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. But here's the problem. That priesthood, that temple, all that stuff was temporary. But Jesus says, Moses spoke about me. And what now in the eschaton, the climax of who? Jesus. Listen, Christ is the temple. Christ is the person. Christ is that priest forever. You know what makes Jesus glorious? Is that he, ready? Unlike the priest of the Old Testament, he ain't a sinner. He's perfect. He offered no sacrifice for himself. And you know what else about Jesus? Jesus will never die. 
again. He's alive and he's a high priest forever. Hebrews chapter 7 says he lives forever to make intercession for you. He's a perfect high priest who never, ever sinned. And he offered, ready? Watch this. Are you ready? Boom. One sacrifice for all. It never is repeated. It's done. That's why he says it's finished. It's over. It never happens again. It's never repeatable. It's forever done in history, completed with a perfect high priest that lives forever to intercede for you for all eternity. He's yours and he lives forever. And you know what else is glorious? When Jesus died that day, there was a, an earthquake. And there was an earthquake and it split stuff. And that veil in the temple was ripped in half. And that symbolized to all of God's people that Christ has gone beyond the veil before us. And so the Bible says, now that you've got this high priest forever who offered one sacrifice for all, you and I as believers in this climax of history of dis- as descendants of Abraham, we have, according to the Bible, bold and confident access to enter God's presence because you are covered in the righteousness of the Lamb. Do you see the eschaton? Do you see God's victory in history? Do you see how Moses talked about Jesus? I I have a question for you. Where's the temple now? Anyone know? Where's the temple now? In Israel, Jerusalem's temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus came, the perfect sacrifice, the high priest forever, the Lamb of God, the temple itself, isn't it interesting that within 40 years, that temple was destroyed, never to be built again? And let me just say this as a side. One thing that I think is perverse about dispensational premillennial theology that I used to believe, and I think it's unhealthy, is the fact that dispensationalists believe that one day in the future there will be a rebuilt Jerusalem temple. And I used to support ministries that tried to give money to help Jews from around the world to get back to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild their temple. Let me just say this to you right now. If the Jews rebuild a temple, it will be the greatest offense to God ever. Because it would be the Jews saying to Jesus, you are not the sacrifice forever. You are not priest forever. And you are not the temple. If the Jews rebuild a temple, it will be the greatest fist up to God with a high hand. And as Christians, we should never support any idea of a rebuilt temple where animal sacrifices are reinstituted, it will be the greatest offense to God. Jesus is the summation of all those things, and his is eternal. Okay, here's the last things, and we're done. This is cool. Moses records the promise of victory. In, it's, in your, it's in your bulletin. You can see it in your bulletin. Numbers 14.21. What's it say? Are you ready? But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Did you catch that? Let's do it again. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like God plans on being defeated in history? Nope. Sounds like God is saying that all the earth is going to be filled with his glory. It sounds like God is saying his descendants are going to fill the world. It sounds like God meant something when he told Adam, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill the earth. It sounds like God meant something when he told Noah and he renews this covenant, go, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and fill it. 
It sounds like all this is pointing toward this glorious climax of history where God is victorious over everything. And is it any wonder that that's the case when Paul cites Psalm 110, where he says, He, Jesus, must reign until all his enemies are under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. What is, just, what is put under his feet? All his enemies. Are you getting the picture of victory in history here, guys? Are you starting to taste it and see it? And the last one, and I love this one because I love the name. Here you go. Ready? Here's another name. If you have any more babies at Apologia Church, we're growing this church somehow, okay? If we have any more babies, here's a good name, Shiloh. That's a cool name, right? Here's, here's where that comes from. Are you ready? Genesis. In Genesis, oh, I didn't write the reference. It's, for, it's chapter 49, Genesis chapter 49. Let me get to it here so I can give you the exact reference. Genesis 49, Moses wrote about this one to come. There you go. Thank you. Genesis 49, 10. It says this, ready? This is Moses writing. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Talking about Shiloh. Now what? Ready? Catch that? And to this one, Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the peoples. Are you catching the theme? The glory of the Lord fill in the earth, the descendants of Abraham fill in the world. That this one, all the obedience is going to be to him of all the nations. And isn't this cool? If you go to Romans chapter 1, you can read it later. It's like bookends. And Romans, as Paul, this rabbi, is giving us the gospel in Romans. Isn't it amazing this rabbi uses terminology like this? You can read it later, Romans 1 and 16, at their bookends on the book of Romans. Listen, a rabbi who believes in Mashiach, the Messiah, he says this, watch, about Jesus. He says, verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship through him, Jesus, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name. Ha! Ah, a Jewish rabbi, Mashiach, a descendant of Abraham, and he's saying we're going to bring about the obedience of faith amongst where? All the nations. Wait a minute. That sounds like Moses. That sounds like Shiloh. To him would be the obedience of the peoples. And again, in Romans 16, it's a bookend. At the end of Romans, verse 16 Verse, sorry, chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. And we're going to end here, guys. 16, 25 through 27. It says this. Now to him who has power to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God. Ready? Here's the bookend. To advance the obedience of faith among the nations. Jesus is going to conquer history. Does it surprise you that Jesus' last words to us as he ascends to the Father in Matthew 28, we, we talk about it all the time as Christians, but does it mean anything anymore to us? With all these eschatologies of defeat, when the Messiah ascends to the Father in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go make disciples of all nations. Are you hearing it? What was God's eschaton going to look like 
total victory. And what does this mean for us? What does it mean? So what? Here's a so what. We have been brought out of death. We have inherited the blessings of Abraham. We're his offspring. We will inherit the earth, the world. We have been brought out of slavery to enter the heavenly city. We have a permanent high priest. We have a completed once for all sacrifice. We have bold and confident access to God. We are in Christ who is the temple. We have shalom, peace with God. We are a part of God's promises to bring about the obedience of the faith of all peoples. And so, so what is this? You, descendant of Abraham, child of God, you who have peace with God, you who are forgiven for all eternity and have inherited eternal life, go and preach the gospel. How is this all going to take place? It's going to take place with the ones who have inherited all these blessings, boldly coming against a world that is in darkness as salt and as light. It's going to come as, with believers like you and I taking this gospel of the kingdom to call the world to repentance and faith, to say, Jesus is Lord. He reigns. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. The call is this, repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's the call. You just go tell people. He died. He rose again. He lives forever. Repent and believe for forgiveness and salvation. Come to Jesus as Messiah and receive forgiveness and salvation. Guys, you have inherited all of God's promises. You are raised up, Paul says, and seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. You are righteous in Him. What are you afraid of? This is a gospel that causes you to risk everything because you already have everything. The question you have to ask yourself is this, how is God calling you to be used for His glory in your life? You've got to ask that question. What is your life summed up in? Let me ask you that. Is it in your career, this temporary thing that can go away at any moment? Is your, is your inheritance and blessing, you think, simply your house or your car or your, the stacks of cheese in your bank account? What is it? What means more than this message, this gospel? What's more beautiful and transcendent than this God's story in history, which if you're in this room right now, you're hearing this message of God's grace and forgiveness and peace. And if you've believed in Christ, you are a descendant of Abraham, an inheritance and all those blessings. And if you're in this room right now, listen, listen closely. If you're in this room right now and you don't know that you're saved, you don't know that you're forgiven and you're in Christ, the call is very simply this. Jesus is the Messiah. He is Lord of all. He was righteous. He died. He rose again. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin to God to receive forgiveness and grace and eternal life as a gift. Let go of your attempts to get right with God through your good deeds. Abandon everything. Your righteousness, your filthy rags. Abandon your bootleg attempts to get right with God through your moral attempts to get to Him. Abandon your, uh, your, your hold on ceremony and your, your activity and you come to God naked to be clothed in this Messiah. That's the call. You come and you fall on this Messiah and you receive Christ and you receive life for all eternity. And my call to us as a church is this. Please, people of God right here, listen closely. Please, this is my call to you as a church. Live a life of risky, risky missionary sacrifice for God. 
lay everything down at Christ's feet and you ask God daily, how can I be used to further your kingdom? That's everything. It's the only thing that matters. Let everything else go. And you come to this Messiah and you serve the living God. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray that you'd bless this message and all those who heard it for your glory and your kingdom. May your name be holied. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, and let this church be a means to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.